sayings on outdoor signs. Personally, I usually, on church outdoor signs. Personally, I usually find them corny, shallow, misleading, and downright wrong. But there was one church sign that caught my eye years ago that I have not for, uh, forgotten. And the sign read, smooth seas never made a skillful mariner. In other words, calm seas never give the sailors the opportunity to test or use the skills that are needed to navigate safely in rough seas. When those skills are tested, mariners gain the necessary skills and confidence that they will need to withstand the ever-changing seas. It is rough seas that test a mariner's skill in manning whatever vessel he is responsible for. So the same is true if we are to become skillful Christians. The Bible is clear that God will be bringing testing and trials into our lives to test the genuineness of our faith and to strengthen the love that we have for him. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7 goes on to say, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God sends trials into our lives to test the genuineness of our faith. God is not testing us for his benefit. He already knows if we have genuine faith. But when he puts us to the test, it becomes the proof to us, to our genuineness of our faith. A true believer may struggle or even have doubts about what he is going through, but he will never abandon his faith. A true believer trusts God even in the middle of difficulty. It's easy to say, I love the Lord when everything is going your way or when life is rosy, but it's quite different when you have devastating news. When we're faced with severe trials, when difficulties press in on us, these are the times we need to live out our faith with endurance and hope and genuine faith in God. Sadly, there are many who proclaim Christ who abandon the faith when testing and trials come upon them. Paul alludes to this in 2 Timothy 3, 5. Here, he talks about those who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And the writer to the Hebrews spoke of this in Hebrews three fourteen, writing, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Paul clearly states in 1 Timothy 1, 19, that those who fail to hold the faith with a good conscience have made shipwreck of their faith. All of these above verses are indicative of those who are not true believers. Ladies, no matter where you are in your walk, whether you're a new believer or a seasoned mature believer, you will encounter various trials because God will continue to test the genuineness of your faith, giving you assurance that you are a true believer. And not only are trials for our benefit to show the genuineness of our faith, but they also produce endurance. James 1, 2-4 states, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials develop our ability to keep trusting God when times are tough. And these trials can come in all forms, such as our health, our jobs, our relationships, finances, 
breaking my glasses this morning, can't find the right shoes, on the phone with American Airlines that doesn't have my ticket. All of those are trials and testings in our lives. If you are a true believer, the Lord will use any number of ways to test your faith, which in turn works to strengthen your faith. God's testing of us always has a purpose. It is never random or chance. We may not always see the purpose of what we're going through, but we trust God's purpose in every trial and testing sent our way. One of the greatest examples of extreme testing in Scripture is the testing that God brought to Abraham. Abraham was commanded by God to kill his son, to slay him, and offer him as a burnt offering. And if that wasn't difficult enough, Abraham was to be the very instrument by which this was to be carried out. What an example for us to follow. In studying chapter, Genesis chapter 22, we will see the test that God chose for Abraham, Abraham's response to the test, and what were the results of the test that Abraham experienced. So let's begin by looking at the test that God gave to Abraham. In verse 1 we read, And it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. After what things? You'll recall from chapter 21 that the long-awaited son Isaac had been born. Ishmael and Hagar had been sent away, which brought peace to the home. Abraham and Abimelech had made a peace treaty, which culminated to peace in the land. So there was now peace and tranquility in Abraham and Sarah's life when God brought this severe test. Isn't it often the case that after a blessing we encounter a trial? Maybe you had just gotten a bonus from your job, thinking you can finally catch up on your bills, or maybe take a vacation, only to find out that you need to replace your entire AC unit. Of course, that is a blessing. Now you have the money to take care of that, but you were hoping that maybe you, would have, you could do something fun with that bonus. Ladies, these things just don't happen, like me breaking my glasses this morning. They are ordained by God for our benefit. They test our commitment and trust in him. And just to clarify, the word tempt in verse 1 does not mean tempting as Satan would entice us to sin. Rather, it refers to God testing us to prove the quality of our faith. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God will never tempt us to do evil, but he will test the genuineness of our faith. We also see from verse 2 that God was testing Abraham's love when he commanded him to take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him there as a burnt offering. Abraham, as we know, had another son, Ishmael, but Isaac was the son of promise. And as we see from verse 2, Isaac was the son who Abraham loved. So the question is, who did Abraham love more, Isaac or God? Ladies, is there anything or anyone in your life that is so dear to you that you will not be willing to give it up for God? Luke 14, 26 tells us, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke is not literally saying we should hate our family and even ourselves, 
but in comparison to our love for God, it would seem like hate. We may never be asked to give up these things that we so cherish, but we must be willing to put God first before all things. And this test didn't come out of the blue for Abraham, nor was it an isolated incident. God had been preparing Abraham for this very test. Again and again, Abraham had been challenged to surrender those things that he loved. He had left his father, his homeland of Jordan, and he was even told to surrender the gifts of Sodom's king. And now he was commanded to surrender his son Isaac, whom he loved. This was the final test. It was examination time. Here was the test for which God had been preparing him, coaching him in the school of faith, giving him those little tests along the way. Again, the final exam, the ultimate test to sacrifice the son he had so waited, waited so long for, the son whom he loved, the very one God had promised Abraham. In the final test, God was commanding Isaac's life. He was commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. Was his love for God greater than his love for Isaac? Did Abraham have the spiritual muscle and endurance to make such an unimaginable sacrifice? Ladies, we don't just go out and run a marathon without training. We train by building our endurance and strength one step at a time. We build our muscles and endurance one race at a time. We may start with running a mile, then five or ten miles, Then comes the ultimate test, running a marathon of 26.3 miles. In much the same way, we build spiritual strength and endurance. Through trials and testing, God builds our love and faith and steadfastness one trial at a time. God often engineers these trials and testings so that as we endure, we grow in faith and spiritual maturity. So regarding Abraham, again, this was the ultimate final exam. God commanded, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Over the years, Abraham had learned to trust God, and he knew that God was dependable. Repeatedly, the Lord declared to Abraham that in Isaac shall your seed be called. Yet now, not only was Abraham commanded to give up his son, he was also the one that was going to bring his son's life to an end. How did Abraham respond to this test? Verse 3 states, And Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went to the place which God told him. Abraham responded with immediate obedience. He didn't question God, nor did he hesitate. He immediately responded to God's command, just as he had done in the past when he had got up early to send Ishmael and Hagar away, and just as he had done when God told him to circumcise all the men of his household, he did it that very same day. Abraham immediately uh, immediately obeyed. Ladies, delayed obedience is not obedience at all. If you need time to think about what God is telling you to do, that's disobedience. That is not trusting God. 
It is saying, well, wait a minute. Maybe I know what is best for me. Maybe I know a better plan. Ladies, this also applies when teaching our children. When you let them argue with you or hesitate to do with what you tell them, that is disobedience. And first-time obedience could even save their life someday. Imagine your child standing at the road and a car is coming and you tell him to stop. That could eventually, that could save his life, first-time obedience. So Psalm 119.60 says, I hasten and do not delay keeping your commandments. This is a perfect picture of first-time obedience. The lesson for us here is to do what God tells us to do without hesitation or excuse. My husband, and I have permission to, uh, permission to share this, learned this the hard way. When the Lord began to seriously burden him to pursue the ministry, Jack ran from God. He rationalized, he made excuses as to why that was not possible or feasible. But for three years, the Lord pursued him relentlessly. During that time, he was never more successful in business, and at the same time, he was never more miserable. Jack finally surrendered in obedience to the Lord. Then the Lord began to work. While attending a missions conference here at Lakeside, there was one night that we both weren't feeling well, yet both of us felt the Lord was compelling us to go. It was the last speaker of the night that spoke for literally no more than five minutes about village missions. We both knew immediately that was where the Lord was calling us. In obedience, Jack said yes, and nine months later, we were on the mission field. We had no idea how we would make it financially, but we trusted God and obeyed our calling. And God provided every single day our daily bread. We didn't have all the answers. We didn't know how all things would turn out, but we trusted God and desired to obey his calling. And I have to tell you, the Lord blessed us exceedingly beyond what we could ever think. Even when we don't understand what God is calling us to do, which seems much of the time, we need to trust God and obey. We may not see what God is doing, but we trust his wisdom. Spurgeon once said, when you can't see the hand of God, you can trust the heart of God. Often we have a propensity to ask, why this, Lord? Or that makes no sense, Lord. Or that doesn't fit my agenda, Lord. Put yourself in this story. God is asking Abraham to do what I would consider the impossible. Yet Abraham never asked questions. He trusted God with immediate obedience. Whatever Abraham thought, he walked by faith and not by sight. Anytime God calls you to obedience and you feel those fleshly instincts that tell you, I can't give this up. This is too great a sacrifice, or this is a major inconvenience. You have a choice to make. You can either follow the Lord in faith by obedience, or you will resist him through obstinance. I think we all know what the right choice is. In verses 4 through 5, Abraham's second response was to worship God. Here we read, On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Why did Abraham respond in worship? Because worship is the very evidence that a believer is trusting in God to help. 
Worship is acknowledging the worthiness of God to receive praise and honor and glory. And worship is the very, sorry, worship is the very evidence that a believer is trusting in God to help. Worship acknowledges that we need God's help, that we're not independent or capable on our own. So Abraham's response was one of worship. Humanly speaking, again, this was a devastating request. But Abraham's heart was set on God and his promises. Instead of thinking of himself, he had his eyes set on God and his greatness and gave him praise and thanksgiving. That is how you face a trial, setting your eyes on God. Abraham had three days' journey to set his eyes on God, to contemplate what the Lord was asking him to do. Hebrews eleven nineteen gives us some insight as to what Abraham thought about on that very long journey when it states, he, meaning Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. Abraham had full confidence that God would fulfill his promise regarding Isaac, even if it meant bringing him back from the dead, which was totally unheard of at that time. What obedience and what faith. We again see this clearly in verse 5, where we see Abraham responding by going up to worship God, and in doing so, showing his trust in the Lord by telling his servants he would surely return. Abraham fully believed with no hesitation that he would return with his son alive. And in returning with Isaac, God's plan would be fulfilled. He never wavered in his obedience to do so. Abraham never wavered in faith and trust as he and Isaac went to worship the Lord. Amid carrying out what I would deem the most difficult task, sacrificing your child, Abraham's heart was centered on God. His heart and eyes were centered on God and worshiping him and not on his circumstances or himself. But how often do we focus more on the trial or the circumstance? So often when we do that, we miss the blessing, we miss the lesson, we miss the growth. On two occasions, God called our family to leave Lakeside and to leave our church family. We were called onto the mission field to serve elsewhere. I had to concentrate on the task that God had given me, not on what I was missing, but what I was gaining by being obedient to what he had called me to do. Looking back, I think of how many joys and blessings I would have missed had I not obeyed God in moving us to other areas of ministry. We concentrate on what you know of God, his attributes, his faithfulness, and how he has led you in the past. That is what will get you through the trials that you are going through. And God will never bring a test into your life that you cannot handle. He has given you all that you need to succeed. When you are going through a trial you don't understand, dwell on the fact that God is good and perfect and that he won't do anything wrong. Don't rely on your feelings. His love is behind everything. He is sovereign over every circumstance in your life and totally in control. Abraham walked with God for many years, and he relied on that when he couldn't understand what God was doing. The knowledge of the attributes and character of God can sustain you through any trial and testing. 
And again, this test came to Abraham when he was a mature believer, not when he was a new believer. He had walked with God many years. God will not test you beyond what you're able to bear. He works to the level of your maturity. Abraham had such a deep trust in the Lord that although he had never heard of anyone being raised from the dead, he believed that if Isaac died by necessity, excuse me, God could raise him from the dead. God could perform a miracle if needed to keep his promise. In verse 6, Abraham prepared gathering up all that was needed for the sacrifice, giving the wood for Isaac to carry. Abraham took the fire and the knife and they climbed the mountain together. You can only imagine the questions that will be going through Isaac's mind. We have the wood, the fire, the knife, but where's the animal sacrifice? Isaac questioned his father, Abraham, about this very thing in verse 7 when asked, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? It must have taken a lot of faith and trust in Abraham for Isaac not to run away or stop abruptly waiting for his father to answer. Yet Isaac willingly followed his father up the mountain. Abraham's response in verse 8 says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Although Abraham did not understand how God would provide, he had full confidence that he would, in fact, provide the sacrifice. Again, ultimate confidence that God would provide all that was needed. This was an attitude of true faith. God would provide at the right time. Verses 9 through 12, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar here, there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. We don't read any further conversation between Abraham and Isaac, although I can only imagine again what is going through Isaac's mind. Isaac must have realized that he, in fact, was to be the sacrifice, Yet we don't see Isaac questioning his father or running away. We don't know Isaac's exact age, but God calls him a lad in verse 12, which in Hebrew can refer to a young man. It would also appear from other calculations regarding Sarah's age, Isaac's weaning, and other events that Isaac would have been between the age of 30 and 35. The point is he was not a small child. This would make Isaac's submission to his father incredible. He had complete confidence and obedience in his father. Ladies, in Isaac we see a perfect picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who thousands of years later came down from heaven to earth submitting to the father and voluntarily laying down his life as a willing sacrifice for our sins. Philippians 2, 3, uh, 2 5 through 8 reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Isaac is a beautiful picture of Jesus in that he did not run away. No one took his life. He laid it down in perfect submission to his father, Abraham. Abraham had been an example and testimony to his son, showing him what faith, trust, and obedience to God looks like, enabling Isaac to have that same faith and trust 
in him that God would provide a sacrifice. Ladies, will you follow Abraham's example when trials, when God sends trials into your life? How you handle trials and adversity speaks volumes to your children, your family, and the world. Make sure you're exhibiting faith and trust in what the Lord is doing in your life. We're not called to be perfect, but the bent of your life should be one of confidence in the Lord. It's okay to have times of struggles and doubt, but you don't stay there. You persevere, trusting in God. In verses 10 through 12, it continues, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham had passed the test. With obedience, trust, and worship, his faith and love for God was tested, and he passed with flying colors. The result of this test was the absolute assurance that Abraham loved God more than, he, more than anything else, even his beloved son Isaac, and that he trusted God to be faithful to his promise to Abraham in establishing a great nation through Isaac. Ladies, this story was written for our instruction that we would have encouragement and persevere when we are faced with tests of our own. God wants you to honor him in these tests, and he wants you to grow through them. These tests help us to know that we are genuine believers. James 1.12 tells us that blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When we truly are believers, tests will draw us closer to the Lord and are a sign of God's love for us. He wants us to pass. He wants us to grow. He wants us to build our spiritual muscles, affirming our genuine faith to ourselves and as a testimony to others. In verses 13 to 14, we see a result of God's test by providing a ram caught in the thicket to be the sacrifice. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. What a beautiful picture and reminder that God will provide for us all that we need to be successful in the trials that come our way. God wants us to succeed. He wants us to pass the test. His goal is not for us to fail, but to excel in our love, trust, and perseverance. And not only did Abraham gain more assurance of his faith, but he learned more about God and his character. Abraham truly saw that God provides when he provided a lamb caught, uh, ram caught in the thicket. Abraham named the place of the offering Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Abraham learned that God can be trusted to provide and meet his needs. Ladies, I have seen repeatedly how the Lord has provided for all my needs. He has supplied strength, endurance, financially, emotionally, spiritually, and he fixed my glasses this morning. <laughs> Everything that I need, he has provided in his perfect time, not my timetable. 
Be patient with what God is doing in your life. Don't get ahead of him. You want his best, not what you think is your best. In verses 15 to 19, God reiterates his covenant with Abraham in declaring his blessing of making a great nation of Abraham's descendants and even extends that um, covenant with the conquering of the Canaanites. God blesses and honors obedience. The richest joys and blessings are for those who obey above all else. In ending this chapter, verse two, uh, 20 to 24 brings one last reward for Abraham's family in that God was preparing a wife for Isaac. Her name is Rebekah. God, being the provider, was making sure Isaac would have a wife so that through his promises to Abraham, that through them his promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. So ladies, when the storms of life come, and they will, how will you respond? Will you immediately obey God, trusting that he knows what is best for you? Will you look back at how he has prepared you and strengthened you? Will you thank him and worship for who he is? You can pass the test if you apply these things. Okay, chapter 23. (laughs) Okay, so in chapter 23, we see how Abraham dealt with the death and burial arrangements of his dear wife, Sarah. Sarah was the first person in Abraham's family to die in the land of Canaan, and she died without God's promise of many descendants fulfilled. Abraham may have thought again how this promise would be fulfilled. He had one son, and now his wife is dead, and Isaac didn't have a wife. Where would the innumerable generations come from that God had promised? Will this shake Abraham's faith? This is yet again a statement of faith of how God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. We will see from Abraham's example in chapter 23 how we as believers who walk by faith deal with death, pain, and sorrow. We're going to see three ways of believers to deal with the loss of a loved one. Quickly, we're going to see this. We begin in chapter 23 with the first way we deal with the death of a loved one, and that is by grieving. We read in verse 1, verse 1 and 2, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So we see from these verses that Sarah died at the ripe old age of 127. Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, better known as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. For some 60 years, Abraham had wandered throughout the promised land, accompanied by his faithful and devoted wife, Sarah. Sarah, like Abraham, walked by faith. She left her home, her father's home, for a new land she knew nothing about, followed her husband as his helper, and waited for God's promise of a son, even though she was beyond bearing children. She was his faithful companion for more than 60 years. In verse 2, we see that Abraham, after losing his beloved Sarah, wept for her. Referring to Abraham's mourning and weeping for Sarah, one commentator put it this way, What a scene it must have been, this white-haired old man with noble countenance and flowing beard, stooping over the cold clay of his beloved and letting the tears run unrestrained down his cheeks. 
Ladies, there's nothing wrong with a believer shedding tears over the tragedies and heartaches of life. Tears are healing and help to mend a broken heart. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Grieving for a loved one is not a lack of faith, nor is it unspiritual. Death is our enemy. We were never meant to physically die. It is the result of the fall of man, which is a consequence of sin. But we don't grieve without hope. First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14 tells us, Our grief is different from those who have no hope. When a believer dies, we mourn with a grieving that has hope. When we are, we are not overwhelmed by death, death is our enemy, but it is a conquered enemy. We have victory over the grave. Nevertheless, mourning is a natural and proper response for Christians. We don't need to suppress it. We have the sure hope and promises of God that all our tears will be wiped away in glory. Yet Abraham's heart was broken and tears ran freely down, his eye, down from his eyes. And although Abraham whipped better, bitterly, as do all of us who have lost loved ones, his sorrow was not one with no hope. Sarah was now eternally home. She exchanged the Bedouin tent for an ivory palace and having gained a notable saint. There's a second way Abraham faced the death of Sarah. Uh, Abraham maintained a good testimony. Although he was still grieving his beloved wife, Sarah, verse tells us, then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heath, saying, I'm a foreigner visitor among you. Give per property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. We see back in Genesis 17:8 that God tells Abraham, also, I give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All the land had been given to Abraham, as God had declared, but Abraham never made the Hittites aware of that. Legally, from an earthly perspective, Abraham owned nothing. He owned no property, and he was considered an outsider, which is alluded to in verse 4. Not being a Hittite, Abraham was considered a foreigner, a non-citizen, and thus legally he could not own any land. But rather than boast in the promises God gave about the land, Abraham maintained a good testimony among these pagans. In grieving, he politely asked for land for a burial plot. He didn't demand his rights under God. In verse 12, 7 and 12, it actually tells us Abraham bowed down in all the negotiations, which were many, yet he never lost his patience. He went through this long process with patience, satisfying all the customs of the day. And although Abraham did not want the whole field, he only wanted the cave. He was willing to take it at a high price of 400 shekels just in order to secure what he needed. We see in verses 19 to 20, a third lesson we learn in dealing with the loss of a loved one is that we trust God for our future. Negotiations were complete, and Abraham buried Sarah in Hebron in the land of Canaan. This was a statement of Abraham's faith in the Lord to keep his promise. God's word to give this land to Abraham's seed forever. 
After years of nomadic wandering, Abraham now owned a small piece of real estate amid all the land divinely promised to him and his descendants. The cave also served as a burial plot many years later, as Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, and Jacob were also buried there. As Abraham, in hope, bought a, ca- a grave site in the land, so believers today have a hope beyond this life. The time of death when one's natural inclination is to mourn as the world mourns should be the time of a believer's greatest demonstration of faith. For the recipient of God's promises have a hope beyond the grave. In chapter 24, we see how God providentially ensured the fulfillment of his promise by guiding Abraham's servant in acquiring a bride for Isaac. Ladies, I remember praying for godly spouses for my children. When they were allowed to date, we were very keen on knowing the families, and we gave our children specific boundaries on what dating would look like. As a mother, I took note of all the eligible ladies and men in our church, thinking which one would be a good match. We had raised our children to know what to look for in a potential spouse, but of course they needed my help. In like manner, we see Abraham's involvement in helping his son find a wife. Abraham is old, and with the passing of his beloved wife, Sarah, Abraham is deeply concerned to find a wife for Isaac to continue the process of making a great nation. In Abraham's time, matrimonial arrangements were made by parents, and chosen partners were to to come from one's own tribe. Abraham wanted to make sure... Isaac took a wife from his own people and not the Canaanites. In verses 2 to 4, Abraham made a solemn pledge with his eldest servant, instructing him to return to Mesopotamia, his homeland. Abraham was deeply concerned that a wife for uh, Isaac would believe in the Lord and that by marrying someone someone from his own tribe, as opposed to a Canaanite, it would remove the possibility of leading the people away from the true and living God. Having a Canaanite daughter-in-law was out of the question. Isaac needed a wife to carry out God's plan of blessing Abraham with many generations. The daughters of Canaan were worldly and wicked with no knowledge of the true and living God. They were steeped into pagan idolatry. In verse 5, Abraham's servant questions him saying, What if she won't return with me? Maybe I should bring Isaac with me. Abraham was emphatic that Isaac was not to go and risk that if things did not go well, it would nullify God's promise and the giving of the land. So ladies, there's some practical application here. It points to the danger of why a believer should never marry an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6.14 warns, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Although this verse includes a variety of unyoked relationships, such as business and friendships, it certainly includes marriage. We also see from this text the need to trust God to fulfill his purpose in your life. In verse 7, we read, The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. 
This verse is a clear statement of Abraham's faith in that he trusted God and his divine oversight as his servant made the 450-mile trip to Mesopotamia. Abraham had full trust and confidence that the Lord would, in fact, provide a wife for Isaac and that she would return with the servant. So it begs the question, are you trusting the Lord to fulfill all that God has for you? If you're not to be married, do you trust that God will provide a spouse? Regardless of your situation in life, single or married, you can trust God to fulfill his plan for your life. There's another critical lesson for us here. We should always seek the Lord's will in our life, especially as we consider marriage. In verses 10 to the 14, we see the, the servant of Abraham gathered all, the needed, all that he needed for the journey to Mesopotamia. When he arrived at his destination, the servant prayed, asking God for guidance, wholly trusting that God would show kindness to his master, Abraham. Then he proposed a practical, uh, practical test. As women came to the well, he would ask for a drink, and the girl who offered to draw water, not just for him, but also for his camel, she would be the one God had chosen for him. Hospitality required uh, water be given to a thirsty stranger, but not to the animals. A woman who would do both was unusually kind and served beyond the call of duty. This was a small test, but such a woman would make a very good wife. And this was not asking God for a sign, but rather it was a test for her character. The servant had 10 camels, each drinking five gallons apiece. Drawing this much water into the trough in the heat of the climate was a huge undertaking. Wells were deep, and it was hard work to draw the water up. Such a woman would be rare indeed. As the narrative continues, we see in verses 15 to 20 that it was a young virgin named Rebecca who came out and offered water to both Abraham's servant and his camels. Rebecca fulfilled every petition the servant had made to God to help him identify the woman that was to be Isaac's wife. The servant rewarded Rebecca for her willing spirit with generous gifts. Then he discovered Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel and the granddaughter of Nohor, Abraham's brother. So God had answered prayer. Rebekah had all the godly qualities that both Abraham and his servant had prayed for. This is a standard that we should never lower today. When considering marriage, a woman should look for a man who exhibits godly qualities. She should look for a man that evidences Christ, a man who seeks to grow in his relationship with the Lord. He should be a man of integrity, a man who is honest, and one who has a servant's heart. Men also should look for a woman who is godly. She should be submissive to the teachings of God. She would be, should be a believer and be striving to follow the guidelines of what it is to be an excellent wife. The rest of chapter 24 outlines the negotiations that Abraham's servant had with Rebekah's family to bring her back to Isaac. In verse 67, the chapter culminates in the blessing of Rebekah becoming Isaac's wife. So ladies, we finish our study of Genesis with chapter 23 or 25 verses 1 to 8 where we see that the death of Abraham. 
In verses 1 through 4, we see after the death of his beloved son, uh, his beloved Sarah in chapter 24, that Abraham takes another wife named Keturah and has six more sons with her. In verses 5 through 6, we see that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac and that he gave gifts to his other sons. Then Abraham sent them away from Isaac and his son. This was a prudent move to ensure that Isaac was the rightful heir without competition or threat from his half-brothers. Verse 8 tells us that Abraham breathed his last. Abraham had finished well. He ran the race. He stood the test. And I'm sure he heard at the gates, well done, thou good and faithful servant. One commentator put it this way, it is a great thing to see a man stepping out boldly for God at the age of 75, to see him cutting family ties, pulling up his roots already sunk deep into Mesopotamian culture, starting out on the pilgrim way. It is even more impressive to see him a full century later going on as strong for God as the day when he first pulled out of Ur. It is a great thing to start well. It is even better to finish well, as Abraham did. My husband often says, I want to flame out, not rust out, in my service for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the example of Abraham and the walk that he walked with you, his faith and trust in you, Lord. And I do pray that we would continue to look to him too, to look to his example of perfect obedience, Lord, doing things first when you tell us to do them, Lord, to worship you in honor and glory, Lord, and to continue in prayer and fellowship. And we just thank you for the example that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came from heaven to die uh, in our place to save us from our sins, Lord. And so that we put our trust, faith and trust in him. And we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.